0: I really was here over ten years ago, and I have good memories before it was before you had these stupid buildings up here We had rooms in the basement of the hotel itself So it was possible to get up five minutes to ten and just in a pyjama <laughs> took the Sorry uh, Yeah, that's true. Yeah, okay. Okay, so I hope it will not be too boring. I want to uh, introduce a well-known concept, but I'm to approach it in a different way. Lacanian concept of objectia, object small a, as the object cause of desire, and how this works in our digital civilization. As a Freudian, I would like to begin by Freud's Unbehagen Kultur, strangely translated, as civilization and its discontent, where Freud deploys his vision of the human being as a prosthetic god. A being manufacturing and using technological supplements to his finite and limited body to approach an ideal of omnipotence or omniscience. As expected from Freud, his point is dialectical. It is not that men cannot approach these ideals. Troubles emerge precisely when Humanity does seem to approach them, like, you know, as they say in psychoanalysis, the only thing worse to not getting what you want is to get what you want. Here is a quote from Freud, uh, Unbehagen in der Kultur. Long ago, man formed an ideal conception of omnipotence and omniscience, which he embodied in his gods. To these gods, he attributed everything that seemed unattainable to his wishes or that was forbidden to him. One may say, therefore, that these gods were cultural ideals. Today, he has come very close to the attainment of this ideal. He has almost become a god himself. Only, it is true, in the fashion in which ideals are usually attained according to the general judgment of humanity, not completely. In some respects, not at all, in others, only halfway. Man has, as it were, become a kind of prosthetic god. When he puts on all his auxiliary organs, he is truly magnificent. But those organs have not grown on to him, and they still give him much trouble at times. Future ages will bring with them new and probably unimaginably great achievements in this field of civilization and will increase man's likeness to God still more. But in the interests of our investigations, we will not forget that present day man does not feel happy in his godlike character. It's a very simple thought, but I think it fits even better our situation today with all the gadgets and so on than Freud's time. Namely, is the prosthetic god as a cultural ideal not embodied today in popular culture in a series of superheroes like Batman, Spider-Man, or Superman? Incidentally, it's worth mentioning that the title of the last Superman film, The Man of Steel, is of course the English translation of Stalin, you know, Stalin means in Russian, The Man of Steel. Uh, Superman, if we judge from the latest wave of cinema remakes, all these superheroes are definitely not happy. They are all haunted by anxieties and doubts. I think this is a nice symptom. Did you notice how, in contrast to the early superhero movies, even in the 60s, All these superman, batman, whatever, were simply happily intervening. Now, all of a sudden, we get this psychologicalization. They are all, you know, Spiderman, Batman, they all have some traumas, cannot decide, and so on, and so on. For us, common mortals, there is an unmistakable dimension of beyond the pleasure principle in our dealings with artificial organs and gadgets. Instead of just enhancing our pleasures and powers, they cause fear and anxiety. In the last decades, due to biotechnological breakthroughs, prothesis exploded and wiring our brain is around the corner, it is even already done. I read somewhere that in some countries it's already even mass produced, like if you are heavily crippled, you get the chair, but you know, you don't even need uh, Stephen Hawking's proverbial. Fi- some your brains are wired, and you like just think strongly forward, and somehow the signal is interpreted, the machine moves, and so on and so on. Something very weird happens here. Uh, when with my mind I can directly cause objects to move. Uh, so that the brain itself directly serves as a remote control machine. When this happens then, in the terms of German idealism, we enter what Kant called intellectual intuition, Intellectuelle Anschauung, the closing of the gap between mind and reality. A mind process which, in a causal way, directly influences reality. For Kant, who insisted on human finitude, only this is the definition of the divine infinite God. We humans, we live in a gap between inside and outside. God thinks about something, he can directly actualize it. Uh, But the problem is that, as we learned from Kant, as well as from Freud, this gap of finitude is at the same time the resource of our creativity. The distance between mere thought and causal intervention into external reality enables us to test our hypothesis in our mind. So, as Karl Popper put it nicely, the whole point of experiments is that we let hypotheses die instead of ourselves in experiments. So, this direct, Short circuit between mind and reality implies the prospect of some radical closure. You know, like when your mind is directly wired to reality, you think it happens. The problem is that, again, we lose the very gap which defines us as humans. Our basic experience of human identity is, I'm here, reality is out there. And okay, it may appear wonderful, you know, I think about moving an object moves. The problem is that as they say, what goes out goes in. That is to say, you can also have a machine which steers your brains directly. And I will not bore you with old stories which I used already here years ago, just to mention one which really fascinated me. Some guys in New York and also in Germany, I know them, they sent me a video. They did a wonderful experiment which brings pleasure to my totalitarian mind. <laughs> they uh, wired a uh, RED in the sense that through computer, through steering, it's very elementary, but it works. They wired a the RED so that you can, from outside, import into the RED these simple signals run forward, turn right, left. And then you have a live rat running around in a cage, you press a button, a rat turns into a remote control toy. You can literally steer it. It's very primitive, but it works. Why do I find this fascinating? When I met these guys, uh, we immediately, all totalitarians understood each other. They told me they don't care about rats. What interests them is the following. If you do this on humans, which probably they did it, they just don't want to publicize it. how will we humans experience it and the result is pretty terrifying it's not because this would have been the easy way out that let's say you have you wolfgang the master i think i walk around here you press a button and you steer me it's not what you think that i would all of a sudden feel some foreign power took me over no the horror is i would still thought that i'm acting spontaneously i wouldn 't even experience it as being, uh, as being scared. This is the new let 's call it a point of apocalypse. The apocalyptic process will reach its zero point when prothesis will no longer merely supplement the human body and brain uh, but They will, in a way, supplant it, leaving behind the notion of human being as a worker whose know-how enables him to use prosthetic instruments. (coughs) Sorry. Uh, uh, So, uh, the problem is that with such an increase, the... Prosthesis is no longer experienced at such. Here, nanotechnology enters. You know, it's easy with all this external wiring where at least you are aware of the machine outside. And this is why, for example, even some friends of mine who have to do dialysis claim that you get used to it, but at the beginning, there is something terrifying in it, like you see a machine out there and like your life depends it but the problem is that even you know with nanotechnology more and more these implants will be invisible what is already happening and I sorry if I repeat myself a little bit I improvised about this in my class here already what fascinates me is that we are approaching we are not yet there but we really are approaching at closing the gap between virtual digital universe and reality. Today, we still mostly live in this idea like with sex, you know, you either uh, do it with a real person or you play games, sexual games on the screen or whatever. But uh, a machine developed by some, I always forget his name, maybe it's my spontaneous racism or whatever, an India gun at MIT guy developed a machine which is still very primitive, like, it's on a. You have a camera, you have a receiver, cell phone, a projector, and all this is then con- you are connected to some supercomputer. It works out. When you look at something, the camera also looks at it, and the camera is programmed to recognize many objects. Then, from the computer, it gets feedback, so you get immediate information. Like I walk along. And I see a building, let's say Empire State Building. And I look at it, and all you need is just some kind of a flat surface instead of you where the projector immediately, it's done in less than a second, projects onto it basic information about that. You know, it was built in, I don't know when, 33, 34, blah, blah, whatever you want. It works with books. You show a book, it's immediately projected onto it uh, the the reviews of the book or you show a plane ticket it immediately tells you this plane has a delay or whatever the catch is you see that it's no longer virtual reality is here real reality is there the real uh, virtual dimension is directly projected onto real reality why does this sound so strange? And you can imagine a nasty, dirty guy that I am. What was my first idea? <laughs> to have the sexual, you know, I look at a woman and it says she likes Kunilingur, she doesn't like these movies and so on. I get instantly projected all the stuff. But seriously, uh, uh, you know, what is so interesting about this machine is not that it's something unheard of new, doesn't it function In a way, it just copies the way our reality already functions. Let's take a basic racist experience. If I'm a racist, I see a black guy, an Arab, a Jew. And how does racism work if you are truly a racist? You don't see just that person, you see embodied there all the prejudices and so on. You literally project them on. onto onto the person so if anything you see here I'm not technophobic I think the good thing about this machinery is that it makes us aware of something which we are already doing even in so-called direct uh, 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 immediate authentic relations with the other An other a foreigner is never what he really is it's always the Network of ideological prejudices and so on that you that you uh, that you project onto it so uh, uh, This is the first thing we should remember when you hear all this stuff Virtual sex will ruin immediate sex and so on. Yes, but in a much more radical way than we think The lesson of virtual sex is not, oh, once there was an authentic sex. No, it's that there never was an authentic sex. What the lesson of virtual sex is that even in real sex, it's never immediately you and your partner. Instead of all those projections, it's simply your fantasies and so on. You are attracted, you know, this is the basic, I will not go into it, we all know it. Psychoanalytic lesson. Fantasy is not, sorry for being vulgar, I want to sleep with that woman. She is minimally rational and knows never with a guy like that, so I don't have a chance. So I fantasize. No, no. Fantasy is an answer, why in the first place do do I want to have contact with that woman? It provides the coordinates of my desire. So uh, the lesson is rather a denaturalization of sex. Human sex, it's never just me and the partner, it's always in non-authentic sex. I'm an old romantic, I still believe in authentic love and so on. But in a non-authentic sex, very naive difference, but let's, uh, I still maintain it, let's not uh, uh, lose time for that, uh, it's like the structure is masturbatory in a way. I use the other as a masturbatory prop to enact my fantasies and I'm here very old-fashioned. I think there is something called authentic love where you can reach uh, beyond that. But let me go on. So this is one way to fight uh, technophobia. No, I think that The lesson is much more radical. It's not once there was natural sexuality, blah, blah, blah. no. We just became, you know, here I'm a little bit an opponent, although I greatly appreciate him, of Bruno Latour and his idea, uh, we were never really modern. No, my answer would have been, we were always already modern. We just didn't know it. It's the same formula as Lacan's who claimed that it's not only that God is dead, he has this beautiful paradox that the lesson of psychoanalysis is that God always already was that, he just didn't know it. (laughs) To remind okay. That's the first thing. The second thing, which is absolutely crucial about uh, new technology is that, you know, this primitive idea technology today wants to play God, we want to become all powerful, totally dominate nature and so on. It's how can I put it in naive empirical terms it's totally empirically wrong this is not the technological dream today it's something else today science wants precisely to be surprised for example to create an artificial intelligence which will as it were start to act on its own and surprise us here A nice point was made by a guy whom I really appreciate, Jean-Michel Dupuy, a French uh, 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 theorist of catastrophes who also teaches in Stanford. And my friendly advice, maybe you should try and get him. He really, he's a Heideggerian, basically, but very good in uh, uh, modal logic, catastrophes, and so on. And he says this, uh, quote from one of his texts. How are we to explain that science became such a risky activity that according to some top scientists, it poses today the principal threat to the survival of humanity? Some philosophers reply to this question by saying that Descartes' dream to become master and possessor of nature has turned wrong and that we should urgently renounce this uh, hubris, be master of nature. They understood nothing. They don't see that the technology profiling itself at our horizon through convergence of all disciplines aims precisely at non-mastery. The engineer of tomorrow will not be a sorcerer's apprentice because of his negligence or ignorance, but by choice. He will give himself complex structures or organizations, and he will try to learn what they are able of by way of exploring their functional properties. He will be an explorer and experimenter at least as much as an executor. The measure of his success will be more the extent to which his own creations will surprise him. This will be the measure of his success, not just that they will be able to perform Uh, to perform our tasks and so on and so on end of quote so again science and technology today do not uh, aim at uh, do not aim at sorry do not aim at uh, understanding and reproducing natural processes but at generating new forms of life that will surprise us The goal is no longer just to dominate nature, the way it is, but to generate something new, like you know, today the point is no longer to totally dominate uh, uh, animals or form of life, but to create create life too, a totally artificial life which will then gain its own, uh, its own uh, autonomy and so on and so on. And of course, this provokes fear, anxiety, and so on, and so on. Uh, This fear, we are afraid of this prospect, is what? The dream, again, that sustains the scientific technological endeavor is uh, uh, is to trigger a process with no return. A process that would exponentially reproduce itself and go on on its own. One can even imagine what can be the unforeseen result of nanotechnological experiments. New life forms reproducing themselves out of control in a cancer-like way. And I like this fear. You remember when they tried to recreate that uh, 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 Big Bang conditions in CERN here across the street. (laughs) One paranoiac idea, I loved it, was that what if they will succeed too much and... They will trigger a process where our entire reality will uh, disintegrate and so on and so on here is one of the standard descriptions of this fear a quote from a popular text artificial life the coming evolution by Doyne farmer and aleta berlin quote within 50 to 100 years a new class of organisms is likely to emerge these organisms will be artificial in the sense that they will originally be designed by humans. However, they will reproduce and evolve into something other than their original form. They will be alive under any reasonable definition of the world. The impact on humanity and the biosphere could be enormous, larger than the Industrial Revolution, nuclear weapons, or environmental... pollution, end of quotes. Now from a psychoanalytic standpoint, it is clear that this fear is a fear of what Jacques Lacan called lamella. What he means by this is some obscene undeadness, a substance which just beyond life and death blindly reproduces itself, not sexually but through division. You know. So the idea is we have our normal, normative sexual reproduction, but then the result of our experiments can be some obscene, asexual form of life that it just goes on and the more you cut it, destroy it, the more parts reproduce themselves, and so on, and so on. And of course, there is always this fear in Creating all the gadgets that mobilizes and so on and so on. And here, Jacques Lacan proposed a neologism, Latouze, L-A-T-H-O-U-S-E. Latouze. It's a weird word. There are many associations. This is for him the name for things which did not exist prior to the scientific intervention into the real. From mobile phones to remote controlled toys, air conditioners, artificial hearts, whatever. So Lacan's idea is that this is the true power of science. Descartes got it wrong. It's not just to master nature, but to create new forms, organisms. This is why this is science at its most terrifying. Science is basically, it's like, It's like I was always horrified, once I went in Vienna, I think, to a museum of natural horrors, and I'm a naive guy, I couldn't sleep for weeks, you know, I was awake. You get all those monsters, you know, a goat with two heads or whatever and so on. This is science, precisely this unheard of uh, objects. This excessive objects which, all the gadgets which they have three features first they they are what drives our capitalist explosion basically today all capitalist explosion today is based on producing these protetic gadgets which enhance our abilities and it's already done this move towards that machinery I, I, I read now that Google is already putting so Google glasses no where again It's more immediate immersion of reality and the virtual dimension and so on. So, we have a market economy, a surplus there. We have scientific real surplus object, non-natural objects. And we have the libidinal surplus, a surplus enjoyment, unheard of enjoyment. Like, you know, the problem of course is with all these processes who needs real sex. And so on. So uh, this excess. Now, this is the introductory part. Lacan's name for this excess is what Lacan, Jacques Lacan, calls object small a, l'objet petit a. Now, let me make a little bit of the tour. What Lacan means by this? I will be very precise and give you a simple erotic example. It's confidential, but it comes from the other part of the world, so it's not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, basic the definition of object A would be the imperfection that works. Like, you, when you, this would be, I think, what Lacan calls objectita, object smollet, at its purest. In a person, something that is a sign of imperfection, but if you take it away, you lose everything. You know, you don't get, for, let me give you the example. It happened, I will not tell you which country, to my psychoanalytic friend there who told me that a voluptuous lady who was his patient told him how when her last lover first saw her fully naked, he told her that with just three, four kilos less weight, her body would have been perfect. What's the catch here? It's totally wrong to think, okay, let her go through a diet, lose two, three kilos, and she would be perfect. No, she wouldn't. That's the catch. Only with this little bit overweight, the illusion is created that she is almost perfect. But if you take it away, she would probably be just an ordinary lady. You know, it's the excess which disturbs perfection but creates precisely. You know, the paradox is that uh, it's an excess of imperfection. But if you take it away, you lose the very perfection that it disturbs. uh, Now I come to a little bit more of a theory. I rely here on my good friend Mladen Dolar, whom I follow here, because I claim that this object A, this disturbing excess, has a precise function it's the weak point, the symptomal point of classification. And we all know that from Plato onwards, the problem of classification is always where things get complicated. You know, Plato already has this problem if you classify things with the ideas. But what do you do with vulgar objects like sheet dirt and so on is there an idea of sheet of dirt and so on and precisely I claim dirt and waste is a good example of the paradox that I try to describe because I don't know how it is in your country but the paradox I'm describing exists in the United States in England and in my own shitty country Slovenia it's that you know with all this I always violate it I think it's just a pedagogical bullshit you know all this uh, all this, how do you call it, uh, um, um, with waste that you, uh, you have to separate different forms, you know. You have, for example, one bin for, uh, you have t- uh, one bin for, one basket for plastic object, paper, organic waste. But then there is always something that doesn't fit into it all. So you have this, 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 and then you have And this is crucial, one particular basket where it says general waste. And that's the necessity. In what sense? Let's do a little bit of a dialectic of classification. Okay, our teacher here is the greatest, Kierkegaard. He proposed in his Fear and Trembling the most famous example of a crazy classification. Maybe you know it. I quote, a wit has said that one might divide mankind into officers, serving maids, and chimney sweepers. And then he praises this classification. You know, so of course this is not just confusion. The logic is very precise. Officer is man. Maid, serving maid, is woman. In male chauvinist universe, they would have been the ideal couple but then you have the object A, the intruder, you have the chimney sweeper. And you can imagine him doing all possible things with my extremely dirty imagination. <laughs> you can imagine what I, how I imagined it, that the first to make love, they forget about contraception, and then the chimney sweeper. <laughs> I, I will not go into it, no. But uh, so again, what is the paradox of this classification? Where is the logic of it? It's precisely a proof that in a proper Hegelian dialectical sense, an antagonism is precisely never a binary opposition. The point is that what in psychoanalysis social sciences we call antagonism, it's never we have just two. We have two, but for the two to be antagonistic, you need a third element to confuse it. Like even in class struggle, a true orthodox Marxism does not say there are only two classes. No, there is always either what Marx called or Hegel called pöbel rebel" or lumpenproletariat, or for uh, the fascists, the Jew. You know, some element which, this, and it is this element which stands for what the failure of classification. Now, in Marx, here I follow Mladen Dolar. He introduced even two types of this paradoxical classification. The first one is when in Capital he talks about market exchange between worker and capitalist as, I quote Capital, the very Eden of innate rights of men. There alone rule freedom, equality, property, and bentham. You know, what's the joke of Marx? He takes the great... Uh, uh, the chimney sweeper is Bentham here no that is to say he takes the great uh, he takes the great formulas of the French Revolution and adds a disturbing element Bentham Bentham you know the philosopher of egotism utilitarianism of course what Marx wants to say here is pretty simple and clear it's that uh, it's precisely this disturbing supplement Bentham which tells you what. The big slogans, freedom, equality, really mean in a bourgeois society. Freedom means freedom to trade, to sell. Equality means legal equality, which covers up actual inequality, and so on, and so on. So this is uh, the first paradox of, mentioned by Marx, that you have a classification where one element sticks out. It's kind of a dirty intruder you don't expect it there All oh, uh, freedom equality whatever and Bentham what is this dirty guy doing here well he tells you the truth about how the big slogans function <laughs> then uh, Marx has uh, another example in capital when he talks about money the general equivalent he says I quote it is as if Alongside and external to lions, tigers, rabbits, and other animals, which form together the various kinds, species, and so on, of the animal kingdom, there existed in addition the animal, the individual incarnation of the entire animal kingdom. This is, of course, the Marxist theory of money, that the generality, it is as if the universality exists among its own species as one, of its elements, so that, and we get here into all the uh, dialectical paradoxes of how, uh, of how uh, the universality always includes itself as its own species. And the problem, I will not go into it today, it's too much, it's precisely how to read these two classifications together, because in one case, the additional element is dirt, worthless, like, chimney sweeper, whatever, Bentham, the vulgar. In the other case, it's the most noble. Like uh, you have one element which immediately gives body to uh, universality. So what we get here, and this is crucial. Now I come to a slightly more difficult theoretical part. Uh, It is uh, that the paradox is that in the, again, that's the fundamental dialectical paradox. In the, div- the division between universal and particular is always mirrored within the particular. When you have a genus and different species, one of the species always embodies the genus as such. How does this function? Here, I think, I can take an example, it's a wonderful one, I envy him for this title. Walter Benjamin uh, uh, wrote an early essay where the title i would be ready to sell my mother into slavery for me to invent this title is on language in general and human language in particular Mm -hmm. now you have to read very carefully here benjamin he doesn't mean some new age stupidity you know that there are different languages you know what, what what some of those echo guys are saying you know like we have a Uh, madman, uh, mountain climber, I was happy when he dropped that on a mountain in Slovenia, who claimed, before I climbed a mountain, I talk with the mountain. I ask the mountain for permission. And, well, the mountain obviously got the point and (laughs) finished him off, no? Uh, You know, so that we have, I don't know, DNA, biological language, animals talk, even trees talk. I mean, if you are British, you know that Prince Charles is specialized in talking to trees and so on, you know. And then humans and maybe divine, la- no. The, the genius of Benjamin is that there is only one language but in this language itself you have to differentiate between universal and particular. Universal is the abstract structure of language as such Particular is all the pathology of power relations, obscenities, and so on, which makes a particular living language. And again, the universality is not the universality, which combines different languages. There is only one language. Let's say, okay, German is a bad example because what they speak here in Switzerland, no normal, decent German understands. It's the same, I think, for each Germany. Isn't there? A, that the Saxon dialect is so strong that in West Germany they told me this anti aussie joke. What's the difference between a Turk who lives in Germany and the Saxon guy? That the Turk speaks much better German and so on. But what I have to say, take a country where there is only one united country, one language. You still have to distinguish language as such in its universality and the particular language, where all the pathology of power struggle, obscenities, and so on is included into it. And I don't have time to develop it, but it would be nice to develop it how even here, I think Habermas is wrong. He doesn't take into account this gap, and he thinks that language as such in its universality can function in a directly normative way, regulating our actual, but that's another topic. What I want to elaborate now is this gap between universal language as such and all the pathology. This is absolutely crucial. And it brings us back to object A, which is the excess of this language in particularity. I want to make the starting point, my starting point, a simple observation which i took from my uh, uh, austrian friend robert faller philosopher remember your most intense forms of enjoyment like smoking and drinking hard liquors remember if you are honest how you learned it it was at the beginning uh, that's crucial it was not pleasure You know how it usually happened you had when you were seven eight years old a friend maybe a little bit older who told you you need do you see the adults are smoking this would you like to try it you did it and uh, the first reaction was disgusting it's the same with hard liquor drinking and so on these are all learned pleasures if you want just pleasure You drink some stupid fruit juice or milk or whatever, you know. All much more intense pleasure are sublimated or whatever displeasure. The lesson from this for me, it's a very important one, is that an ideology, language as a totality of ideology, not in the superficial sense of explicit ideology, but all the symbolic attitudes and so on, is never just the official normative structure. Precisely the ways we are expected to violate the existing normative structure are already prescribed by language. The very transgressions are prescribed, which is why, and I can tell you from my own very modest half dissident, I'm not claiming to be a hero experience, (laughs) For example, in socialism, socialist communist regime in my country, where social communism was relatively soft, we were able to play these games, like maybe the most subversive political procedure was not to attack ruling ideology, but to dismiss all these obscene transgressive rules, to take it more seriously in its explicit values than it took itself. Like, I'm sorry if I repeat an old story. Somewhere in early 80s, or even earlier, there was a student journal. I was part of it, which was like a little bit dissident. And there were elections in ex-Yugoslavia. Elections were not as bad as the Soviet Union. Uh, The party didn't get 99% of the vote. They had enough like 80%, you know. But it was clear they will get it. So we wanted to do some provocation. So some of us said, let's risk it, everything. Let's publish a special issue claiming these elections were a fraud. They were not really free elections. And we protested. We said, fuck it. I mean, everyone knows this. Are we telling people? And and then one of us, not me, I admit it, came to a wonderful idea. Communists claim these are free elections. What if we just treat them like that? so we published a a special issue of our journal on the evening of elections claiming latest result it looks as if communists will still remain in power you know as if this was a question the reaction was furious we will immediately call to central committee shouted at us and i had great sympathies for the small apparatchik who terrorized us we are not really frightened nothing he told us boys don't fuck with us. Don't do that. And then we just said, but what did we do wrong? You claim these are free elections and we just treat. He said, don't fuck with me. You know very well what I mean. And we asked, but What do you mean? It was a tragedy. You know, he would have to explicitly state the obscene secret. He wasn't able to do it. Another ritual like this I have. I claim that when... And i do it all the time as my students may have noticed when you talk dirty swear and so on it's psychologically absolutely not done in such a way uh, that uh how to put it that uh, uh, you know you talk in a polite way then when you get crazy your spontaneity explodes you swear no at least with me i think precisely when you apparently spontaneously exploit You follow formulas, it's the most formulaic part and I have a wonderful ritual with my friend, I love it, to get rid of this obscene urge to be nasty, when we meet we first go through 10 minutes ritual of dirty talk. I will dig out your mother uh, out of her grave and screw her into her ass all dirty and then after 10 minutes of this we said to ourselves okay now we did our duty towards obscenities we are rid of it now we can talk in a normal kind way you know <coughs> i like this reversal how the very obscene excess we experienced it as The most automatic learned part. We have to get rid of that, that we can be spontaneous, kind people, and so on, and so on. So uh, uh, what I want to say here is that, and now I want to give you two tragic examples, much more serious of this, of how precisely the transgression is the most codified way. Uh, Maybe you already know the story, but it's really tragic. I double-checked it. Two cities in North American continent. First, uh, 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 first it is Ciudad Juarez, you know, just south of El Paso. It's uh, one of the world capitals of this fast collecting. They get uh, raw materials or elements from some Chinese gulags, I don't know where, and then they just put together the products, ship them on the American market. So they need a lot of unskilled labor. So you have there thousands of young single women working there. This of course is an affront to male chauvinists. so you get there something which is really terrifying. You get uh, a couple of dozen cases every year, ritualized brutal murders. You get a, a, a girl is kidnapped and I mean even I with all my tasteless jokes, I reach a limit there to tell you. She is first gang raped by some 50 guys then he is slowly killed first with scissors, they cut off her breast, it's really disgusting. But you know what's crucial here, and that's the tragedy, police is always ready to emphasize the brutality. What police tries, police which is corrupted there, what it tries to obliterate is precisely as it were the cultural dimension. That this is not a spontaneous orgy, it's a precisely ritualized procedure. What, and what the police, you know, what's so tragic is that the only person punished, no perpetrators were punished, although everybody knows who they are, the only person punished was one mother of a girl who inquired into it too much. But police tried to dismiss each case as, oh, probably it was a dysfunctional family, father raped her, alcoholic, and so on. So this is what I want, you see, it's not we are on the surface civilized and then some barbarism explodes no barbarism is structured through culture totally now you will tell me okay i am a white racist you know haha ha, making fun of poor mexicans Ah, ah, ah. let's go to the other side canada vancouver the most civilized city you know how canadians like to both to both we are like united states dynamic but with european civilization and so on Friends told me there that near Vancouver you have a big uh, reservation of natives. And it's a regular sport of young guys from Vancouver to drive there, kidnap a Native American, Indian, whatever you call it, I prefer Indian for specialized reasons, girl. Again, gang raped, killed, and just dropped there. Not one of them was arrested because although it's a ritual, police systematically treats it as individual family or oh, probably the, her, her, her family they were drunk addict drug addicts whatever again what i found interesting is that what is systematically ignored is not the brutality of the crime but the obscene of course cultural dimension of the crime and incidentally. If you want to be a real leftist, uh, many things can be said here about Canada because, you know, Canadians also like to boast how, for example, towards Indians. They were much more human than Americans. Fuck it. I learned that even today, from almost half of the Native American families, children are taken and put into boarding schools. Like, blah, 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 they don't have proper education in the family. Family is dysfunctional. And now what I'm giving you is not some crazy lunatic leftist data. This is official data of an inquiry from Canadian Parliament. You know, in these boarding schools, and we are talking about boys and girls from 6, 7 to 15 years, you know what is sexual exploitation rate? How many of them are raped? 80%. And we are talking about today. No, it's nice to talk, oh, this was somewhere in the dark 40s, 50s. No, today. And I think that this is the first task of a radical criticism. To see how all this particular, you know, our culture is not only the official Christian whatever values all these obscene phenomena are part of our culture in the same way that pedophilia is part of Catholic identity and so on and here I will give you the last example then I do some concluding remarks on theory Uh, In Turkey, it's a nice example of how this obscene supplement is part of you know that the big hero of Turkey although now his glory is undermined is Kemal Pasha Atatürk you know the founder of modern Turkey okay his official image was ascetic like Stalin you know ascetic leader works 18 hours per day for his country and so on and so on then there was a myth of him that in reality he is a super macho seducer that he screwed the wives of all his ministers and so on but now okay maybe I'll be arrested when I go next time to Turkey but my friends from Turkey told me this that all historians know that this is not true that in reality at least from 19, mid 1920s Ataturk was totally impotent and that the most he was able to do was play some soft games of masturbation with small boys and so on so at, there was then That's what I like, an extremely obscene thing that happened, uh, still in Ataturk's time, after his death, but when Ataturk was still totally sacred. At some point, an official Kemalist politician addressed a crowd claiming, uh, don't listen to those rumors that our father Ataturk is screwing women around, he works night and day for the country, and so on. And then a member of the opposition said, Yeah, yeah, we believe you. It's absolutely not true that he is seducing women and so on. He disappeared the next day. You know why? Because, again, you know, the official image was not only Ataturk works night and day, but was precisely this rumor of his seductive powers. And this rumor was. Clearly part of the same ideology, it didn't fit. And in most countries like this, like I remember in ex-Yugoslavia, you have President Tito, blah, blah. And then there were all these rumors that you know because Tito liked to invite movie stars, Elizabeth Taylor, Sofia Loren to Brioni Island. You no, know, the rumor was did he fuck Elizabeth Taylor while Richard Barton was shooting a movie in Bosnia and so on. But this was all part of official ideology, this dark underside. Okay, but let me stop with this and go back to my now concluding part, just the problem I want to focus. How does this third element, chimney sweeper function? Remember, we have the official binary opposition, officer mate, in this case masculine feminine, and then the third element. But this third element, this is the crucial point, is not something that undermines binary logic in the sense of it cannot be fixed. It's be- no, I claim is precisely difference as such. And that's the most radical dialectical thesis. You have two differentiated terms, and then you have difference as such. The paradox is very nice here. It's that in a way, difference, precedes the terms which are differentiated now you will think this is a speculative obscurity let me give you a simple example you know if you are old enough you may remember times when there still was something like left and right in politics you know but are you aware of the paradox of it there is no neutral conceptual field from which you can divide you can say leftists claim this Every theory about where is the difference between left and right is already a leftist or a rightist theory. You know, because if you ask a right-winger what is the difference between left and right, you will get a totally different answer than if you ask a left-winger. A left-winger would have said probably something like this. There is a radical antagonism in a society, and the right-wingers proposing their proto-fascist organic image are trying to obfuscate the antagonism. The right-winger would have said, like a fascist right-winger, society is an organic whole, and we have on the margin uh, Jews, foreigners, whomever who disturb it. But you see the paradox. we have a difference, a strong antagonistic opposition. But each of the two poles of opposition already mystifies the difference as such. You cannot formulate difference in a neutral way. And this is antagonism. This is why you need an additional element. It's so clear, for example, in fascism, where the additional element is a Jew. A Jew may appear to obliterate difference. Because in anti-Semitic, I'm talking, of course, not now of real Jews, but but of the role of a Jew in anti-Semitic mythology. A Jew, already, if you analyze the prejudices, what's the anti-Semitic image of the Jew? It's precisely the combination of opposites, no? Jews are, at the same time, dirty, you know. They don't wash, they fornicate too much, and too intellectual. Like, even some of my American friends, I didn't know they are secretly anti-Semitic. How can you compete with this Jew? We go out, have a beer, they study all the time, and so on. It's wonderful how the Jews bring, you know, on the one hand, they are too intellectual, they study all the time, financially speculate, work too hard. On the other hand, they don't wash, they are dirty, they seduce our women, and so on. Uh, the Jew is, as it's clear in fascism, the dream of fascism is pure binary opposition, organic community of the leader and his followers. And then the Jew from outside introduces antagonism. But you see what this means? Jew is difference, antagonistic difference as such. And the problem is precisely today more than ever What is this antagonism? How to define it? It's clear that all designations were all left from somewhere 60s, tries to formulate a new antagonism. And I don't think they find a way. You know, you have like Tony Negri attempt, multitude, or uh, precarious intellectual workers, and so on and so on. So what's the problem here? I will just to conclude because, yes? exactly one hour I will give you my last example from a book that I really advise you to read it's a historical book Paul fuck it I don't know how to pronounce it f-u-s-s-e-l-l fossil or how Uh, okay he wrote this guy a book called the great war and modern memory it's an excellent book about the ideological impact of the first world war of how it was such a shock that the only way to symbolize it was to resuscitate all even medieval mythology. Like this is where T.S. Eliot's Wasteland comes. The way uh, the the battlefield, all those uh, waste area between the front trenches and so on was in England systematically equated to Knights of the Round Table, Search for Grail, Wasteland and so on and so on. And what I like In this is the myth paranoiac myth that this war gave birth to for example one of my favorite myths is a guy remember his name called Reginald grant he wrote a book SOS he was a kind of a pro-british Stalinist his idea was why because you know the northern part of the front in Belgium was was uh, held by British army not against the Germans and British didn't do too well especially German artillery, was very accurate in hitting British positions. As a good Stalinist, he said, it's impossible, Germans couldn't be better, so there must be traitors here. And they immediately located traitors. These were uh, Belgian farmers who were pro-German. But now comes, it's wonderful. Uh, He, this guy, uh, in his book, which was a big bestseller, gives three procedures alleged, of course, it's fantasy of how Belgians, just farmers, just behind the front line. And the front lines, it was really a crazy war. The front lines were so fixed, you know, that during World War I, most of the years, when British publishers uh, printed maps of Europe, they simply introduce into the map the front line without worrying that it would move you know okay the idea was this one that belgian farmers do it in three ways one is crazier than the others the one is that when women shank their laundry it's all codified you know two white shirts one black shirt means two two degrees to the right, there is an English artillery, whatever. The second one is, it's even better, that uh, if you look at church towers, the clock, uh, the, the, how do you call it, the watch ends are are showing wrong time, which gives a codified message. You know, like, if it's uh, five past noon, but it says ten past noon, it means, Five is different, five kilometers to the right, there is an English battery. And my favorite third one, if you know Hitchcock foreign correspondent, the most famous scene is uh, the guy pursuing a Nazi uh, traitor comes to a countryside and then everything is idyllic, windmills, and then a guy says, do you see something strange? That windmill is turning in the wrong direction. And this, Hitchcock took it from here. This was one meet that Belgian farmers Signal with the wrong direction <laughs> okay, but these are jokes, but then there is one Great I'm tempted to say almost communist Leninist legend which Probably it wasn't true, but it's a beautiful legend and it happened on both sides of the front it was an absolute myth. you know it was like this, you had trenches, second, and in between there was usually, I don't know, from, from 500 meters to two miles, crazy totally destroyed land with old trenches, old uh, uh, shafts, uh, underground caves, and so on. The meat was that. Down there, people live, deserters from all sides, half crazy deserters, who live in brotherhood, they sing crazy songs, they only come out after a battle to steal food and clothes from dead soldiers. And it was such an emancipatory dream that, and the idea was then that in the night they shout like crazy, you can hear them. There is absolutely no proof that this existed. But it's a beautiful emancipatory dream, I claim. Because they were the true Leninists, screw war, it's not our conflict, brotherhood and so on. Uh, uh, this is how you fight ideology. What I want to say is that something like this we need today. They were, if you want, the chimney sweepers, you know the idiots were fighting the official duality, they were the chimney sweepers and they stand for the true difference. They were the one who really made difference and that's what we need today with all the struggles that we are confronted with that media tells us like for example uh, fundamentalists versus western liberals where things are getting crazy i think the first abc of political analysis today is that of course i'm against fundamentalists but the whole point is the way global capitalism generates fundamentalism these are two sides of the same coin Which is why such strange things are happening like now, you know, like the arch enemy of the United States is supposed to be Iran. Did you read newspapers what is happening these days? Iran and United States are coordinating military acts to to fight the Sunni. so what I'm saying is that the big problem today (coughs) is to define a difference which really matters, you know to find the chimney sweepers who embody the real difference. Otherwise, if we accept the official media, struggle of permissivity, multiculturalism versus fundamentalism and so on and so on, we are lost. And this, it's here that the two aspects, antagonism, difference, classification, and uh, object A come together, this excessive look, don't the big battles between whatever, male, female, or classes, or whatever. No, look for the chimney sweeper. Or when you have a war, look for the madmen in the middle who live beneath. Well, fuck it. I'm finished. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs>